Well, good evening. How are we all doing? Can everybody hear me okay in the back? Mom always said I had a big mouth, so I can project all the way to the back there. Um, I'm going to just, uh, for the purposes of the recording, I'm going to mention that we're in week one of systematic theology, and if you need a handout, you can get a link. Just one sec. You can get a link uh, in the podcast. You'll see a link that you can click, and you can get that handout and download that if you're listening to the podcast right now. Um, and for those now in the room, there are handouts. There's still some on the back table. So if you want to, Ezra, thank you for grabbing those for folks. Uh, and I do have, I can make some more copies if we need to. We can share tonight. I wasn't sure how many folks were going to show up. So I think I might have undershot it just a little bit. But um, yeah, excited to start Systematic Theology tonight. Let me do it with prayer. All right, let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together here. Um, This moment right now is another sign and expression of your grace, your grace in our lives, uh, that we have a a place with a roof over our heads, and, and most of us, I would imagine, now have good food in our bellies after a wonderful meal provided for us downstairs. Uh, We're grateful for this new season now uh, as we enter into fall and see the changing nature of your creation. And Father, as we enter into a new study, would you bless us and keep us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, you should have two handouts. Um, One of them is a handout for tonight's session. And then the other one is a handout that shows you all of the sessions that will happen uh, over the course of the next two semesters. So we kind of have wonky semesters here at Grace. I just noticed when I was actually doing the calendar, the first semester is about 10 weeks and the second semester is about 20 weeks long. Um, And you'll see all the things that we're going to work through in that systematic theology, in our systematic theology course, as well as times when we will have some nights off which is mainly due to uh, my travel. I have a conference I'm going to uh, in September, and we're going to visit our oldest son and his wife for the first time in their new city in Cleveland, uh, where Colton got a new job, and so did Nicole. Um, And so there's some time off there, and then you'll see where we have our winter break uh, between the semesters, and then we'll start up again in January. So that is a schedule that I'm sure, you know, may even tonight already change and shift. So that's just a, a target and we'll see what happens. We'll see how much we get through over the course of our time together. I wanna make sure that you understand how this works. And I even tried to represent it and how I'm trying to set up the room. I want you to not just be looking at me, but at each other. And uh, at any moment where you feel like you wanna interrupt me, you know, raise a hand. If my eyes are down for some reason or not paying attention, you know, say, hey, you. Sport, Chief, Pastor Matthew, dude, uh, you know, and get my, (laughs) and um, because I want this to be interactive. And so if you have a question, please, uh, you know, this is a safe place. We're all here to learn. So don't be afraid to ask it. Someone else is probably thinking it if you're thinking it and uh, would love to be able to answer your questions that way. And as we move into our study together over the weeks to come, Uh, I'll be asking you questions so that you can participate. Eric, you're used to getting questions from me in class, aren't you? (laughs) We should, nothing's, (laughs) nothing's going to change, bro. Nothing's going to change. So I want to give you a a story. Some of you may have heard this story before. Uh, If you're new to Grace, you probably haven't. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about Uh, systematic theology in my life because part of why I'm standing here as one of your pastors here at Grace is because of systematic theology. Uh, In September of 1999, we were going to Bethlehem Baptist Church where John Piper, who some of you may know, used to be the preaching pastor there, and they had an educational institute called the Bethlehem Institute. There were three tracks in this institute. One was for Um, just congregational members who wanted to learn more. Uh, One was for those who wanted to be vocational elders. And there was another track for those who wanted to be missionaries and were going to be sent off 
to the mission field. And we had started going in January of 99 to Bethlehem. And in September, I started two classes in the Bethlehem Institute, Bible study methods and systematic theology. And in systematic theology, uh, this, was, this was our text. So um, you, you don't, I'm actually not making you buy this book that could kill you if it was dropped on you. Um, but this was a text by Wayne Grudem. And I can remember, I was working at American Express Financial Advisors at the time in downtown Minneapolis, and I remember hauling this bad boy to work, and then I would go to a Starbucks after work, and I would do my assignments, and then I would walk a few blocks to the church on a Thursday evening, and I would be a part of this systematic theology class. Now, when I was growing up at that time in my life, um, I was in my late 20s, and I fancied that I knew quite, quite a bit about the Bible and about who God was. And I started to learn at Bethlehem both through the preaching of Pastor John and through going to this class in particular that I didn't know all that much about who God really was. And that class started in September. And by December, uh, the second week of December, uh, it was a cold, snowy December evening uh, there in downtown Minneapolis. And it was seven o'clock at night. And Justin Taylor, who's now the president for publishing at Crossway. It was the first time that he would, had ever taught, and he was teaching this systematic theology class, and we were going through the order of salvation. And I grew up knowing Romans 10, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved, right? So that, I knew that. But what Grudem and Justin started teaching me was that there was so much more to God's salvation and God saving me. There was this gospel call. There was an effectual call. There was justification and, and sanctification and glorification. And, and like a diamond, God's salvation was being held up for me Thursday night after Thursday night. And, they were, and Justin and Wayne were just turning it facet by facet. And I was absolutely being blown away as Paul says at the end of Romans 11, right? Oh, the depths and the riches of God. How unsearchable are his ways and inscrutable his judgments. Like just being blown away by who God is. And in that moment, that night, I knew it, it was like, almost like the heavens opened. I knew this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to help people know God the way that Justin and Wayne are helping me know more of God. And the next day I picked up the phone and called Tom Steller, who was the pastor for leadership development at Bethlehem and the dean of the Bethlehem Institute and described to him what was going on in my heart. And, you know, am, am I getting called into ministry? Like, what is happening to me, Tom? And, and he just shepherded me in that process. And, and long story short, I became a pastor. Here I am. <laughs> Went to seminary and got further training, and, but it all started because of systematic theology and the purposes of God. It's why I'm here as one of your pastors. And it's because, right, what happened in that was that the knowledge that I was getting through Grudem, through, through a text like this, wasn't leading only to information, but it was leading to transformation. It was leading to a changing of my thinking, yes, but also of my feeling and even my calling in life. And so come to this class with warning. Who knows what God might do in your life through working through systematic theology. And that pursuit that I had is going to be our pursuit in this class, certainly a knowledge of God the study of God, but not as an end in itself, as if God were an object to be investigated and fully understood and kind of taken apart in pieces. And the goal of our study of God is to be transformed in the process of a pursuit of knowing more about him. But before I get ahead of myself in that, we should define some terms, such as what is systematic theology or even more specifically, what is theology? John Frame writes this, Theology is full of definitions of things, 
One of the features of systematic theology is that you can turn there and get quick definitions of terms such as justification, glorification, or hypostatic union. Anybody want to give me the definition for hypostatic union? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't want to give it either. <laughs> there, there we go. Definitions are useful, but we should be warned that they are rarely, if ever, found in Scripture itself. Such definitions are themselves theology in that they are the work of human beings trying to understand Scripture. This work is fallible, this work of getting to these definitions. And theological definitions are almost never adequate in themselves to describe the complex ways in which language is used in the Bible. That's why we need the study of ancient languages. That's why we need historical studies to help us to understand the language used in the Bible. Frame goes on. This reminder is especially appropriate when we are defining terms that are not explicitly found in Scripture itself. Theology itself is one of these. Theologians have developed a number of terms and concepts that are absent from Scripture itself, such as trinity, substance, person, nature, aseity, inerrancy, effectual calling. In this way, definitions can be helpful teaching tools, but we should not look at them to find what something really is, as though a definition gave us unique insight into the nature of something beyond what we could find in the Bible itself. So he's giving some warning here. A theological definition of omniscience doesn't tell you what omniscience really is, as if the biblical description of God's knowledge were somehow inadequate, even misleading, or untrue. Okay, so do you see what he's following what he's saying there? Just because we say, omniscience and then put a sentence behind it doesn't mean that we have fully grasped what omniscience actually is, right? These are deep things. And it's not as if that definition was absolutely fundamentally necessary beyond scripture itself and what it tells us to describe this thing that we're calling omniscience. Even though there are none to few definitions in the Bible, scripture, Not any theological definition is our ultimate authority. Theological definitions must measure up to Scripture and not the other way around. So, the basic idea of theology is evident in the etymology of the term. What what do you think the term theology means? Anybody? A knowledge of God or a study of God. Just simply a study of God. Frame argues uh, we should seek a more precise definition of merely a study of God. Now, we could seek to study and know God, who he is, his attributes from natural revelation, right? That's part of how we could get to know who God is. We've learned in Romans that this is incredibly valid, all the way back in Romans 1. And it's a reality for knowing a bit about God. We don't want to discount natural revelation as part of the study of who God is and what we can learn about him there. But God has given us an even more precise and clarifying revelation of himself in Scripture. So if that's true, theology must essentially be, and we're just going to build some framework here tonight for the rest of our study, and this may seem abundantly obvious to the most casual observer, but I don't want to operate on assumptions. I want us to be clear. Theology, so this may seem very obvious, But theology must essentially be a study of Scripture. Once we have established that, we must ask how theology is to study Scripture. What does it look like to theologize Scripture? For example, theology is not interested, although some may argue this would be the case, I would not, in finding the middle word in the Hebrews text of Ecclesiastes, doing numerological studies of Revelation. Further, We must ask, if scripture itself is what we need to know God more, then what's the need for theology if we have scripture? Now, I'm glad you're all here, but you should be asking that question. If I have the Bible, and this is what I need, this is the specific revelation of God, then why are you even going to spend an entire two semesters on something called theology if this is what is necessary to know God? Yes, Eric. What's that? Explain. Explain. A person reads the Bible to their understanding, 
gets their understanding of the Bible in one way. And so you get a warped view. You need input from other believers. Yeah, I think that's good. That's part of it, for sure. Yeah. The yes. Bible is a library with different mm -hmm. kinds of literature contained therein. A lot of it's narrative. And that's not, <coughs> doesn't automatically lend itself to systematic <laughs> understanding of God. I mm -hmm. mean, it certainly contributes to that, but yeah, there are all different kinds of literature in the Bible. And systematic theology puts what the Bible teaches in a propositional form, mm -hmm. a series of propositions. Yeah, that, that and, we in. and that and that's getting, I, I think, closer to my what I've been thinking in in terms of um, we we want to. So what I'm getting at is we want to point out that theology is something different from scripture. It doesn't just repeat the words of scripture, but it is this science, if you will. It is an exercise in trying to understand in community to systematize to line up, even in narratival, different literary forms, what scripture is saying. So the main question about theology could be stated as this. What is the difference between theology and scripture, and how can that difference be justified? Again, why, why do we have theology? Here's an attempt. The theologian states the facts and truths of scripture for the purpose of edification. Truths are stated not for their own sake, but to build people up in the Christian faith. That's what happened to me under the teaching of Wayne Grudem in his text and in the hands of Justin Taylor teaching that text, all of it anointed by the Holy Spirit. I was edified. I was built up. In this way, Frame's argument regarding the nature of theology thus finds itself in Scripture aligned as it is with the New Testament concepts of teaching and Preaching. So if you're trying to find theology, we don't, we don't find the word theology in Scripture itself, right? But if we're looking for the idea of theology in Scripture, the closest thing that we have would be teaching and preaching, the explanation of what's going on in Scripture. And the New Testament itself talks about those things with a word group called the kind of the teaching word group. So didaske, didache, didaskalia, all these ideas of teaching and preaching are all in reference not to the stating of truth for its own sake as a standalone, but to the explanation and application of God's truth in order to build people up and to edify and to transform God's people. So truth doesn't just lie there and do something. It has to be applied. So that's what theology is attempting to do. And in this way, we're all theologians. One of the things that I love doing is demystifying the word theology and demystifying the word theologian because whether you are a stay-at-home mom, you're a wife, you're a husband, you're a plumber, you're a pastor, whatever, whatever you are as a human made in God's image, wanting to study, right? It's just simply the study of God. Do you want to know more about God? I hereby certify you as theologians. <laughs> right truth is meant to do something to bring something about and it is in the explanation and proclamation of truth that change and transformation occurs when it is engaged and interacted with this is seen in one of the ways the didasco group may be translated as teacher teaching or doctrine in the scriptures so for example second timothy chapter 4 verse 3 even refers to this, so this same word that sometimes is translated teaching or preaching or think, thinking that a bit like proclamation. So when you think preaching, again, don't think you're standing up behind a pulpit in front of a congregation. Just that you're proclaiming truth. 2 Timothy 4.3 refers to it as sound doctrine in which, in which the word sound there, that word being translated means health giving. In other words, the doctrine that Paul is on about telling Timothy to teach to others, be someone who's providing sound doctrine, isn't there merely to be and represent a truth. Rather, it's to come into contact with people and to bring them into a state of spiritual health. It's supposed to change and transform us. So that's why you should be excited about coming to this class. There will be things that you have to wrestle with, There'll be things that might feel like they're a little bit beyond your grasp at times. 
in this class, but I want to encourage you. Anybody ever, ever try to do something for the first time? Anybody, ever, right? We all have, right? Were you immediately good at it? If you were, we all don't like you. But were you, right? You weren't. What did you have to do? You had to practice. You had to work at it. If you were going to get better at it, even if you were incredibly gifted, and maybe even especially if you're incredibly gifted, you should work at it to be able to take an understanding to the next level. So I mean to stretch you a little bit. I don't want to stretch you too far so that you break or you decide you don't want to show up anymore uh, because I think systematic theology is going to be really fun and exciting for you. Ask questions. Give me feedback. You see my email address is at the bottom of the, um, the calendar form, all the sessions that we're doing. It's right at the bottom there. I would love feedback if, if I'm going too fast, if I'm going too slow, if I'm not being clear. I want to serve you well. So please be sure to, don't be afraid to give me feedback. You don't have to open up an anonymous email account to do it. Uh, no, no one's going to come after you if you give me feedback. So, um, yeah, this, this class is meant to make us more spiritually healthy. We are not here to get knowledge for knowledge's sake. Theology on this basis is a response to the needs of people. That's the other aspect of this. It helps those who, all, who have all kinds of questions about or doubts about or problems with the Bible. So when, if you think of a question, may, maybe you feel like you don't want to ask it right now, like, like we just talked about on a Sunday, right? Like maybe you feel like I'm already supposed to know the answer to this question. Come up and ask me afterwards. Send it to me in an email so that I can address it next time. I won't use your name if you don't want me to do that. But ask the questions because we all have questions. I have so many. I am studying Romans 9, 6 to 13 for Sunday. I have so many unanswered questions yet, and I'm supposed to write tomorrow a sermon. So I have tons of questions about the Bible. Theology also helps people who have all kinds of questions about, doubts about, or problems with life. And theology, the beautiful thing about theology, because theology fundamentally is practical, if you're doing something and you're thinking of it as or calling it theology and it's not practically relevant to your life, it's not theology. Theology, by definition, is practical and applicable to your life. It's aimed at integrating questions about the Bible and questions about your life. Life. So it's not merely a means of teaching us how to live. In this sense, theology is life because theology is a means to transformation. And isn't that, isn't that what you want? Yes. I mean, don't, don't you want to be transformed? Absolutely. How does Paul say it in 2 Corinthians? Uh, we, with unveiled face, looking at Messiah, are transformed from one degree of glory into the next. That, that's, that's what I want that. I, I want to look more like Jesus. I want to be transformed. Paul Tripp says it this way in his book, Do You Believe? That's this book here. This is his a um, little bit more of a... So the two books that I'll probably go to most frequently in this course will be this one by Paul David Tripp, and uh, this book by John Frame. So this is an introduction to Christian belief. It's his systematic theology, another big book that could just hurt you. Um, and uh, I, I commend both of them to you. Uh, they'll be ones that I'm dipping into as I prepare week by week. But Paul Tripp says it this way in his book, the primary purpose of theology is not information, but transformation. The informative function of the truths of scripture is not the goal of those truths. Okay, so... I should have put this quote in your handout. Uh, the informative function of the truths of Scripture is not the goal of those truths. So they stand there not to merely be information for you, but they are a necessary means to the goal of those truths, which is radical personal transformation. God's plan is that when the rain of biblical doctrine falls on us, it would change us. 
Not that we would become better renditions of ourselves, but that we would become spiritually different than we were before. As the reign of truth falls, angry people become peacemakers, greedy people become givers, demanding people become servants, lustful people become pure, faithless people become servants, proud people become humble, rebels become obedient people, and idolaters become worshipers of God. The doctrines of the word of God were not intended just to lay claim on your brain, but also to capture your heart and transform the way that you live. God isn't just after your mind. He's after your heart. Isn't that what he says? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But he's after our minds also. (laughs) He is. It's both and, but it's not only here. So I can't have... C.S. Lewis says, I cannot have a hothead and a cold heart in relationship to God. John Piper quoting that word from C.S. Lewis while preaching in Romans somewhere around 2001 is, I think, the event that God used to actually convert me. I, I don't think I was converted before. And that pole axed me and I realized that I had spent all of my life, because I was prideful and arrogant, and, and I love thinking, <laughs> I love knowledge, and I love books, and, but I was pursuing a knowledge of God for the knowledge's sake. I was pursuing a knowledge of God so I could win arguments. I was pursuing a knowledge of God so I could look important, and I could sound intellectual, not because I wanted God. And that quote destroyed me. And over the next month or so, somewhere in there, I think, is when I actually believe. Because my heart, I realized, I don't have affections. That This isn't stirring affections in me. So that's, again, that's why we're going to be here. It's not so that you can win arguments, but I hope that you'll win arguments because you were here. Okay? (laughs) Peter says that we should be able to give a defense for the hope that we have within us. So, but there's a, there's a way, right? Like what we're after is brokenhearted boldness. Okay, that's what we want. We want brokenhearted boldness. So I, I want you to be firm in your convictions. I want you to have doctrinal truth that's laying on your mind and is stirring your affections and allowing you to explain and help others know who God is. And then you can answer their questions about God, not just your own. And in that way, you can lead them to Jesus. But if you're, if you're a couple here and you, know, you came for two semesters and you recognize in your spouse like they seem to really be growing in a knowledge of God, but you saw absolutely no change and maybe that we all know each other's besetting sins, don't we? Close, close friends, spouses. Susan and I have been married 33 years. She could tell you where I struggle in a heartbeat. If you're increasing the knowledge and an ability to communicate it and people can't see change in your life, that's, that's a dangerous place to be. It's such a dangerous place to be. And so we need to pray for each other in this class too, that God would transform us through his word. How do we make our way toward transformation in light of the revelation of God in scripture explained to us through the practice and science of theology? Now let me go to frame one more time. He offers only one term that he finds broad enough So this question, how do we make our way toward transformation in light of the revelation of God in Scripture explained to us through the practice and science of theology? There's only one term that he found broad enough to cover all forms of biblical teaching and all the decisions that we make in our lives and in living our lives. Application. Application. To apply Scripture. Now, again, this is... You might say this sounds so obvious, but let's, we got to clarify some things here at the beginning. To apply scripture is to use scripture to meet a human need. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself in a situation where someone was using scripture in your life that had nothing to do with your need? <laughs> you have to be thoughtful, right? Prayerful. Where are they at? What's the situation they're in? What's their emotion in this moment? What's, I know what I want you to have is confidence 
There will be a, a, a siren. You guys know what I mean when I say siren, right? Like Greek mythology, the sirens that would, that would call to the sailors and get the... There will be a siren that will cause you to believe as a believer and follower in Jesus and a reader of the scripture that scripture isn't enough for the problems that you face or the problems that the people in your lives face. But it is. And your goal is to take scripture and see the needs in the people that are in your life and ask God, what is the scripture that will help inform and meet their need? That's theology. You're, you're theologizing. To apply scripture is to use scripture to answer a human question. To apply scripture is to use scripture to make a human decision. Questions about the text of scripture, translations, interpretation, ethics, Christian growth, all these are fair game for theology to show by word or deed, word and deed, how scripture resolves all these kinds of questions is to apply scripture. And it's where the fun of being a Bible reader and a follower of Jesus, it's where you really have fun. The rubber meeting the road, working through. Where does... What's the text? What's the story of God have to say about this? The pastors and I were wrestling with something recently and uh, last week. And I was, I was just at my wit's end. Um, every, I go on a prayer walk every morning through our neighborhood and just talking to the Father about it and um, was led, I, I, think, I think I need to fast, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast tomorrow. And, and Father, I'm doing that because I'm going to sit, right? Because fasting, fasting is this elimination of something because I want more of, I want him. So every time my tummy grumbles, I'm going to think of you tomorrow. So get up in the morning, next day, make a cup of coffee, open up my Bible. I'm in Chronicles. Um, so I'm at the end of the Old Testament. Chronicles is actually the last two scrolls of the Old Testament. So we're going to talk about canon next week. Canon of the scriptures. I wish we all of our English Bibles put it at the end because it's a, a summarization of the entire Old Testament. So if you've ever been in Kings, you're reading Kings, then you go right to Chronicles and you're like, didn't I just read all of this before? Yes, you did. And it's not supposed to be right there. <laughs> so skip over Chronicles next time you're reading through the Old Testament and read it right at the end. I get 2 Chronicles 20, and there's, there's only First and Second Chronicles because it didn't fit on one scroll. These are little Bible facts that I'm just throwing out. Um, so we have First and Second. So Second Chronicles 20, and it's the story of Jehoshaphat, who's in a really tough spot, and he doesn't know what to do. And so he calls for a fast. And he seeks Yahweh. And then there's this little prayer in there. Exactly, like, Here's how to, so I'm, right? Like, what did I just do the day before? I think I need to fast. Yeah. I'm in this, yeah. I'm stuck. What do, what do I, and I open my Bible and in the sweet providence of God, he takes me to Second Chronicles 20 and puts Jehoshaphat, that is not an accident in my life. He puts, he saw, there's a human need. Matthew doesn't know what to do. And he puts Jehoshaphat in front of me and he gives me a prayer to pray. And then he shows me that after that prayer, like God, and the prayer is all about not only Jehoshaphat, but he's like, everybody, we all got to fast and we all got to pray and we all got to seek God. And God answers and provides exactly what Jehoshaphat needs for the people. And they all celebrate and they rejoice and they break the fast and this great meal. I've been in such a good mood <laughs> since that morning, like, thank you, Father. I had a need, and I went to your word, and scripture applied to my life, and I felt such confidence, in, and it's just been bookmarked in my Bible. I've been going to it day after day now, just like rereading that prayer, and like, you see, it's so powerful. That's theology. That's applying the scripture to our lives. It is relevant to your lives. Chronicles. <laughs> Who would have thought? And I would, I would, I would have told you if you'd asked me, "What? Tell me a story of Jehoshaphat." I said, "Well, I, I can't. I remember he was a king. I remember he was one of the good ones. Ah, that's all I would have probably had for you." And there was this whole new something I just hadn't really ever seen before. That's what the Bible does. 
when we give energy and effort to it. So what is Frame's definition for theology since we've heard about this from him along the way here tonight? It is the application of scripture by persons to every area of life. Isn't that a great definition? You're like, oh yeah, I, yeah, I want to do that. The application of scripture by humans to every area of life. So why do we need theology in addition to scripture? I mean, that's a, it's a fair question to ask. Have, have any of you ever been to a theology class before? Not, not very many of you. I'm, so I'm so glad you're here. The reason is because we need to apply scripture to life. And theology is just simply the work of doing that. Now, there are different types of theology. I'll give you a few. Exegetical theology is interpreting the Bible verse by verse. Its application is seen in helping people understand particular passages in Scripture. So I do a bit of that on Sunday mornings. Biblical theology, for those of you who were with me last semester, expounds Scripture as a history of God's dealings with us. It focuses on Scripture as historical narrative, as the whole story of God, the redemptive story of God, which we could say, Eric, in four words, couldn't we? Come on, man. You got this. Oh, that's six words. Yes. Yes. So what Eric just did was he summarized the entire Bible in six, six words. Kill the dragon, get the girl. That's the entire story of the Bible. Six words. But what's our four movements, Eric? Creation. Redemption, restoration. Redemption, restoration. Rescue and new creation, right? So it's, it's a unified story that leads to Jesus. So we're, we're orienting ourselves in the entire story of the Bible. That's biblical theology. And the aim of that kind of theology is to take the story of the Bible and layer it over our story so we understand our story and relationship, right? We're, <laughs> you are all characters. He hasn't stopped writing the story. He has stopped inscripturating it talk about that next week as well but you are all active characters in the story of god he hasn't stopped writing the story right isn't that what paul tells us in colossians he upholds the universe by the what word of his power power. he stops talking we stop existing god is constantly telling a story and you're a character in it what kind of character are you Systematic theology seeks to apply scripture to our lives for spiritual health and transformation by asking what the whole Bible teaches about any given subject. So that's the systematizing of it. For example, it examines what David said about the forgiveness of sins, and then what did Jesus say? about the forgiveness of sins? And what did Paul say about the forgiveness of sins? And what did John say about the forgiveness of sins? And then it tries to understand what all of that adds up to to have a whole theology of the forgiveness of sins. Another way of putting it is to say systematic theology is getting, it's to say say what we today should believe about forgiveness or any other scriptural teaching. Right, So it's, it's taking, here's what the Bible says about it. Those are different times with David and Jesus and Paul. There might be even different concepts we learn about forgiveness in different covenants in which those people were operating. And I'll understand, okay, so what does all that have to mean for today? That's the application part, right? By definition, it should be applied. Seen this way, systematic theology is a highly practical discipline. As a summary of the teaching of Scripture, not abstract or arcane. Like, some people, that's what we think. Like we hear theology, we think, oh, that's what professors do. That's what pastors do. That's what really, you know, that, the A student in my class in high school, that's probably what he's doing. <laughs> Thus, to state the obvious, systematic theology must be Bible-centered. Yes. If we are to apply the Bible, we must be in constant conversation with the Bible. If we're to argue for a particular view, we must always be able to give a biblical basis for that view. Okay, so let's build on what follows. If the Bible says something 
about every aspect of life, then the decisions as followers of Jesus and worshipers of God Almighty, the decisions that we're making and the life that we're living and the arguments that we're giving and the explanations that we are providing should in some way be tied to Scripture. There should be a biblical basis for why we do what we do. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How does scripture help me understand why I enjoyed so much when my wife made key lime cream pie? What is the scripture? <laughs> what does the Bible have to say about that? Yes, yes, but there's always the potential for misapplying Scripture. Absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. We, and which is why we argue. And by argue, I don't mean fight. Right? Our argument, a classical understanding of argumentation is you're going to look at a Scripture and I'm going to look at a Scripture that's trying to get at a certain understanding, let's say forgiveness, and maybe we're looking at Davidic Scriptures and Scriptures, teachings from Jesus, and you may argue a certain understanding, and I might start arguing a different understanding. Now we each have to be able to give a biblical basis for why we're arguing what we're arguing. And what we have, what we want to do, and, oh, okay, we're, man, we're going to be off on this schedule already. I'm not even halfway through. Uh, what we need, see, there's been so much, okay, just a second. There's been so much fighting in probably a lot of our experience in the church about such things. We live right in an age of such incredible division right now that I think we've been programmed to not have conflict as if all conflict is bad. And arguing is a good thing. Arguing is how we get to conclusions. I was so grateful to God for the seminary experience that I had. I, it was a cohort model. It was me, seven other students, seven other men. And we argued. I mean, we argued. Our voices got raised at times. But how we did that was we decided as a cohort that Isaiah 66.2 would be our text. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. So we argue under God, and, and this is the authority over all of us, right? This is the authority. We argue with this as an authority over all of us, so that I may be arguing something about a text that's here. You may be arguing something about a text that's here. I may be right, and you might be right, or we both, we both might be wrong, but this isn't. We know at least that. That's what Isaiah 66.2 is saying. Tremble at the word. And that kind of a thinking, a humility before the authority of God, like if there's an agreement, a common agreement among us, then, then we can have really good arguments. Right? Like, argue your position. Now, I know that for some of you non-confident, my, my wife, God love her, she doesn't want to argue with anybody. Right? Some of you want to argue too much. <laughs> You're like right now going, oh man, can we start arguing right now? Give me a topic. Let's go. Right? But that, that kind of thing, and, and I think even just rooting it in Scripture will help to protect us. So part of this too, the other thought that comes to mind is, remember in the definition, every area of life. So the Bible has things to say about politics, y'all. The Bible has things to say about the TV shows you're streaming. The Bible has things to say about the movies that you watch, how you spend your money, what you should eat, drink. There's all, there is a, and, and the combination of this in totality represents a biblical wisdom that as we immerse ourselves in it, our wisdom grows in relationship to it and into our lives. So it's highly practical. And if we're to apply it, this Bible, we must be in constant conversation with the Bible. 
um, second I lost my place. If the systematic theologian aspires to synthesize the teaching of the whole Bible, she must spend more time with Scripture than anyone else. So if you, if you want to do this, you know, just to state the obvious again, you have to actually spend some time in the Bible. You have to read, I would, I would tell you, y'all, you have to read the whole Bible. You have to read the whole, just start in Genesis. I don't care if it takes two years. Try and do it and there's 90-day reading plans. That will change your life. I'm telling you, that will change your life if you could do that, if you could figure out a way to do it. If you just gave 90 days and said, I'm going to sleep an hour and a half less a day so I can get through the Bible in 90 days, it will change your life to see the totality of Scripture in that short of amount of a time frame. But we have to be in conversation with the whole Bible. And we must do it not only with academic excellence and intellectual rigor, but with a heart knowledge of Jesus, a prayerful spirit, and an understanding of the needs of people. If you love Jesus, you will love the Bible. If you ask God to give you a hunger for the Bible, he will give you a hunger for the Bible. I guarantee it. If, if you just... And it's not about time. If, if you don't read the Bible every day, make it a goal to read the Bible three minutes a day. Just start there. Download Dwell, the Dwell app, and start one of their plans and listen to the Bible. If you have difficulty reading, fine, I get that. Listen to it. They have, I think, 16 different readers now. I listen to Russell because I'm a bit of an Anglophobe. Uh-huh. Or not phobe, file. Thank you. <laughs> Listen to Russell because I don't like English people. <laughs> uh, right now when I listen, I listen in the New Living Translation because I read almost, primary, almost exclusively in the CSB. So it just lets me listen in a different translation. If, if it's hard to listen to translation, you know what? It's okay to listen to a paraphrase. So listen to the message if you're having difficulty being like, do whatever it takes. Fight, claw your way into the Bible. Amen. It has everything you need for faith and life. So, um, where are we going? We're about to go on a treasure hunt in the Bible. I, I, I'm excited. I'm your little guide into the, into the scriptures, into the world of the Bible. We're going we're gonna to talk about the doctrine of the word. We're going to spend a couple sessions doing that. We're going to move in, in just two sessions. Okay, and again... Okay, right? This is like when we were doing biblical theology. And I knew I couldn't do systematics in one semester. So I, I thought, boy, and, and listen, there's no shame if five people show up next week. I, you know, that's fine. I, that's fine. Uh, and I understand that it can feel like a lot. Uh, most educational people, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. Most educational people say what we're attempting to do is crazy because a lot of people, they just want like a six to eight week class. You don't want to sign up for two semesters, right? That's a heck of a commitment. Um, but here's the thing. Even if you miss a couple of weeks, the, the great thing about systematics is they're, it's all connected because it's all in the Bible, but they're also a little bit siloed. So it's not like if you miss, if you miss you know, the existence of the attributes of God, you're not going to understand when we work through creation, so even if you miss, come on back. And I also want you to know, like, right? <laughs> if I tried to teach this whole text to you, it wouldn't just be two semesters of just like on a Wednesday night, right? It would be like a regular class in a seminary. So we're, we're actually, like, it's, I look at this and go, the existence and attributes of God in two hours. Like, that's hilarious, right? <laughs> Creation, we'll do in two parts. Then we'll do providence. Uh, we'll, we'll look at sin, the person of the Messiah for two sessions, the work of the Messiah for two sessions. Uh, then we'll review everything we've learned to that point in a session. And then we'll talk about the person of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll do that for three sessions. That's because you're Baptists and you need more spirit than, than anything else probably. <laughs> and, the plan, and I'm not even joking. The plan of redemption we'll do in four parts. Uh, what would those four parts be in the plan of redemption, Eric? <laughs> the, do- the doctrine of the church Eric please please come back next week Eric <laughs> the, the doctrine of the church you know what you're, you're one of our newest members everybody let's give it up for Eric 
the doctrine of the church, part one and two, and then, you know, eschatology. Again, only two parts, but we're going to do eschatology. Now, I'm going to give you some additional reasons as we, um, well, as I figure out a way to come to a close. Uh, additional reasons to study systematic theology. And you got a little bit of this in an email when we first um, were kind of sharing about this class. One, for God's glory. God is glorified when we seek to know him. Philippians 1, verses 9 to 11. And I pray this, this is Paul, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge. <laughs> okay. Well, we could preach this. We could preach here. Um, isn't it interesting how sometimes we want to separate out those two things? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. As if somehow... Love is this thing over here, and knowledge is this thing over here. And the Bible doesn't do that. Paul doesn't do that right here. His prayer is that your love will grow in knowledge and every kind of discernment. So that, why? Why, do you want, why are you praying that, Paul? So that you may approve the things that are superior. In other words, what should you love? Who should you love? What does love look like? Love is discerning. Yeah. So you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of the Messiah. Filled, now here's the transformation, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Messiah and all of that. See how he's building? Here's the things that, you have love, grows in knowledge and discernment, so you may approve the right things that are superior, so that you may be pure and blameless, that you would have all kinds of fruit that comes through Jesus, it's not apart from Jesus, this knowledge, to the glory and praise of God. Yes. That's, why, that's part of why you're pursuing. That's, if you didn't know why you were here, whatever other reason was that you came tonight, it's so that your life will more... What does it mean to glorify God? Be away. Yeah, to reflect his glory well, said Ron. Us growing in this way causes us to be better. What, what are we? We are image bearers. And so we, we want he is, to, he is the son, we are mirrors. Crud builds up. We want to be shinier. Mirrors. We, we want to display his glory. Number two, to corporately reflect the Messiah to others. Yeah. Right? Theology happens individually, but not individually. It happens, in, it happens best in community. It happens best in community. As the body of the Messiah, we study theology so that the church, our church family, can be an accurate reflection of God to the world in a time when the very concept of truth is called into question. Our church, Grace Church, needs to be ready to give a reason for the hope that it has, 1 Peter 3.15, in Salida and the Arkansas River Valley and everywhere that God spreads us. For it is through us as a church family, it's through the church that the world knows God. We sing a song here, um, build your kingdom here. Because the church, in, there's a line in there that says, the church is the hope of the world. That's good theology. Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 12. This grace was given to me, this is Paul again, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. That's biblical theology, right? Yeah. To tell the whole story of God. I'm, the Gentiles don't know that story. I've, I've been given the grace. This is a grace. This isn't a burden. This isn't a... It is a duty and an obligation. There's a sense in which it's a burden, but we think burden negative, right? No, this is a grace given to me Amen. that I get to proclaim and to shed light. For ages in God, who created all things, 
This is, okay, why, Paul? So that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. What's that saying? If you read on in Ephesians 6, right, he talks about the powers and the principalities that are operating in heavenly realms. So don't think about heaven. You know, we we always look up or say, I'm going to go to, it's it's a realm. You're entering into another realm. And he is saying, that we pursue these things, we pursue theology, so that the wisdom of God can be made known through us to the rulers and the authorities, not just to the world, the Gentiles, but to Satan and all of his minions. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Messiah Jesus, our master. And in him, we have boldness and confident access through faith, in Him. <laughs> we, can, we have everything we need. Yeah. Look, look at you guys. <laughs> this is so fun. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thank you for coming. And I'm so excited. I am so, and I can tell you, the elders of this church and the deacons of this church, I, they are excited about what God is doing here. I'm excited that this many people showed up for crusty old theology to see that theology isn't crusty. That it's exciting and fun and that this is what God means to do through us. We study systematic theology for individual sanctification and growth. Individually, we must study theology so that we may be sanctified and grow in knowledge and faith. We don't just want to know about God as though he can only be known at a distance. We actually want to know God personally and to have a relationship with him. Truth fuels worship. Theology sparks doxology. Do you know what doxology is? It's just just praise. It's it's, literally, doxa is glory. It's to glorify, it's to bless God. So there should be times, and don't don't think this is a guilt. If it hasn't happened yet for you, don't, don't feel bad about this. I'm not saying, there should be times when, when we're reading our Bibles or when we're studying theology and, and we see something, something new and amazing about God and it causes us to fall to our knees in worship. Amen. That we just, or it causes us, because maybe we're a bit older now and if we fell to our knees, we couldn't get back up again without help. <laughs> <laughs> At least in our minds, we're thinking, man, if I could get on my knees, I would. <laughs> Or, or, or tears, right? Affections. There should be tears, like tears of joy. Sometimes tears of conviction when I when I see something new because this is God. This is God we want to know, we want to know about. And and like this hunger. And then and then he, you know, the transfiguration event is this beautiful event, right? Where where I think Jesus, Jesus pulls back this veil a little bit. And he reveals, like the, he, it, Paul says elsewhere, that, that he put on this flesh to, to cover the glory and, and that he laid aside the glory that he had when he came to the earth so that we could comprehend and we could interact with him. He, he took on humanness. He was incarnated. And the transfiguration, I think, is this event where it's like the veil gets pulled away for a minute. And, and he just, he's like as bright, as white as lightning, it says. And his clothes are like lightning. And the disciples just like fall on their face, right? Guys, like, this is my beloved son. And there are these moments, I think, that happens when we're reading our Bibles and we're pursuing God and we're praying for the Spirit to be at work, where it's like the pages, right? It's the living word, it's sharp and active, and it does things. And that should happen for us. God means for that as a gift, for an experience for us. Don't think that that's somehow like scary because it's, you know, only the charismatics have that happen to them. We're Baptists. No, that's the Spirit. Yes. Amen. That's the Spirit coming and anointing us and rushing upon us and opening our eyes to see truth because none of it happens without the Spirit. Truth fuels worship. You ought to be, you ought to be people who sing and dance in your homes. <laughs> Christians should be happy. 
Now you, you read some text and man, you want to throw on some music and sometimes it'll be Christian music and sometimes it'll just be some guy who's singing about truth that doesn't know Jesus, but it's true and it's good. I do that. It's good to ask, if our worship feels shallow, could it be because our theology is shallow? Because our knowledge of God is shallow? Because we haven't discovered anything new about him? Have you ever, who's been married more than 15 years? More than 20? In the last year, have you learned something new about your spouse? Absolutely you have. Absolutely you have. Like we don't, and ideally, it happens because you're like seeking that. You're trying to learn something new. Our worship might be shallow because we've stopped seeking, not wanting to learn anymore about him. Without theology, there's no fuel to the fire of our worship. Enduring heat doesn't come by seeking more sparks. Enduring heat comes as we pour the truth of God's word into our souls. What God's people most fundamentally need, what we most fundamentally need is a grand vision of God. And that's what systematic theology means to give you. Finally, we study systematic theology because doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. It's another way to say it, right? Like theology matters, doctrine matters. Being a disciple goes beyond making a one-time decision to follow Jesus and then, you know, well, I just kind of go on my merry way. Listen to Jesus, John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, which is what? It's teaching, it's doctrines, it's truth. You really are, you really are my disciples. If Right? So conditional. In other words, if you don't, it calls your discipleship into question. Now, I, again, okay, don't, <laughs> that's not a threat. <laughs> that's not meant to make you feel guilty, but it is a warning. Yeah. And I would not be a good pastor <laughs> if I didn't tell myself, if I didn't have men in my life who would hold me to account, if I didn't yeah. tell you if you have no desire to be in the Bible, that's like you're driving down the road and the oil, the check engine light comes on. That's a check engine light in your life of following Jesus. Like something's wrong here. It doesn't mean that you're lost. It doesn't mean that you're without hope, right? But it means something's off. If you're not enjoying the gathered people of God on a Sunday morning, that's a diagnostic Something's wrong. If you don't take joy in being around the people of God, something's wrong. So I tell you, and don't get thrown on the rocks of despair. Now it's, well, what do I do about that? What do I do? The first thing you should do is talk to a good friend. Talk to one of us as pastors or elders. But here's Jesus. If you continue in my word, you're really my disciple. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, we can't just make up what we think God is like or imagine that he will approve this or that. Despite denomination after denomination doing exactly that. Unfortunately, if we did, if we did that, if we just made up what we think God is like or imagine what he would approve, too often he will look just like us. He, we will be making a God in our image and not the other way around and we'll fall prey to the, the thing that has cast nation after nation into judgment. Perhaps this is why Paul warns Timothy, I solemnly charge you, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, I solemnly charge you before God and the Messiah Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing and his kingdom, proclaim the word be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and what? Teaching. Teaching. For the time will come, and it has, when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. Doctrine that will actually bring them health. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
But according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves. Was not Paul prescient? Because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth. They will turn aside to myths. G.K. Chesterton said, if you won't believe in something, you'll believe in anything. They will turn aside to myths. The craziness that people believe. And we have to have the courage to say truth. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. (laughs) Friends, do you like being comfortable? (laughs) I, I do. I like being comfortable. I like routine. I like a certain schedule. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And Paul's writing to Timothy in a specific context, but this applies to us, friends. It is the temptation of fallen man to determine our theology much like a lunch buffet or fantasy football team. Just pick and choose. But the Bible grants no Christian the right to pick and choose which biblical doctrines she wants to believe. The Bible talks about hell, so we need to know about hell. The Bible talks about election. We need to know all that the scripture says about election. Inside the story of God. Otherwise, you won't know how to preach Romans 9, 6 to 13. Not all Israel is Israel. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Doctrine matters, not just in the sense that we need to hold to Jesus' teaching, but we also need to clarify what Jesus and the Bible don't teach. Is Mormonism compatible with Christianity? Does God promise his followers material prosperity? When a Muslim says Allah, is that the same God that we serve? These questions matter. Amen. So why do we study systematic theology? We study it for God's glory, to corporately reflect the Messiah to others, for individual sanctification and growth, and because doctrine matters. So next time, we'll look at key features of systematic theology, and we will start to build a doctrine of the scriptures. A doctrine of the scriptures. Any questions? Any are there more handouts? Uh, there's a couple right here in all. Um, yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll make sure to have, I, I only had 25. And just know that this will be posted. Aaron usually does a really great job within 24 to 48 hours of getting this posted. So if you're, if you're not aware of the Grace Church Salida podcast, Spotify, uh, on Apple Music, or any podcast uh, like I use Downcast as my podcast app. If you just put in Grace Church Salida, that's our podcast here at Grace and it has all of our teaching. So all of the sermons go on there. If I do a special teaching, like I taught at Soup Supper, we put that up on there and then all the course seminars go on there. And then when you go in there, you'll see a link for the handout. So even if if you're like me, I don't like paper, I'm digital, you can get a digital copy of this handout um, going there. So, and I'll make sure to have uh, I just didn't know how many people were going to show up tonight. So I had 25 copies and I, I didn't have enough. So I'm sorry. Um, any other questions? All right. If you have a question, I'll stay up here until y'all are gone. Uh, Ron, would you close us in prayer, brother?